Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Well, what we thought we'd do is, um, because of the na- this being the, 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 uh, the last session in the morning, that we, that we would um, uh, steer away from uh, lengthy uh, dissertations, uh, attractive as they always are, and um, give each of the uh, panellists a chance to say a few words by way of introduction, and then um, really get going with the, um, uh, the proper World Wrestling Foundation stuff that you've all come for. So, uh, uh, Jude, if you'd just like to start by saying perhaps a few... A, a few things about the topic we're addressing in general. Mm-hmm. Kick things off. Okay, well, I'm just going to talk about um, when I was bidding for the Olympics, I was the person who was sort of on the bidding team developing the cultural framework. And I'm sure you're all well versed in the Pierre de Coubertin original philosophy of the Olympic movement, but it was culture, sport, and education. And a fourth element, which actually in his lifetime he was never able to achieve and still hasn't been achieved within the Olympic movement. But the fourth element that he always thought the Olympics should, uh, should achieve was cultural history. He felt that if you were to bring every nation through one door together, the essential ingredient missing in order to make this not just symbolic peace but actual peace was that people should learn about each other's cultures and be well versed in each other's cultures. So when we were bidding for the Olympics, in Singapore. So it's always been Olympic City. It's always been Olympic City. This is my point, really. When we were bidding, you know, it, it was possible to actually look at the origins and the foundations of the Olympic movement and say, well, London has this extraordinary history of being curious and interested and welcoming to the idea of world culture. Um, and anybody who uh, knows enough about Elizabeth I's reign will know that in that time, immigration was sufficiently concerning to people, in just that they didn't have the Daily Mail in those days, but essentially the same kind of issues arose of people feeling there's too many immigrants, there's too much immigration generally, we need to get the immigrants and send them back to where they came from. Um, but I mean, Elizabeth and England wouldn't have been what it was without that sense of, the, of London being the melting pot. And I think it isn't just a sort of fudge and a fusion, it's actually the fact that you can separate out all these extraordinary strands in London and identify you know, the, the Mali community, the Brazilian community, the Portuguese community. So I, I'm just very aware of belonging now to a city that has a history of believing in world culture and, and, and living that story out. Do, do you think, by the way, sorry to cheekily insert a question, that one of the great mysteries that has been alleged about Shakespeare's authorship of his plays was how, how this guy living and working in London have been... Uh, subject to so many uh, influences. Yes. Uh, perhaps you've answered that question for us. Well, well, I mean, I think, well, first of all, I think it's, it, 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 it's very interesting that people are so unable to believe that somebody who happened to come from Warwickshire mm. and didn't go to university, Cambridge, you know, unlike some of the other writers, that therefore he was incapable of doing what Tony Harrison, for example, has done, which is reclaim classical literature, despite the fact that he came from Hunslet in Leeds. So I, mean, I, I think that there's an attitude to London as opposed to the regions, which Shakespeare's reputation suffers from. But obviously, once he came to London, yes, he would have met people from right across the world. And the, the courtier uh, life was, was, you know, w- was very eclectic, yeah. and, and people lived the London life then. 
Hmm. I wanted to ask Sangeeta um, about how London is seen from outside. Do, uh, is it seen as a world city? Or are we overselling our multiculturalism? No, I don't think you're selling, overselling it at all because um, I have been here for about, about eight months now. Mm -hmm. But before that, I've come here several times just for a visit because I've been uh, posted largely in Europe. And uh, each time you come here, you get this feeling of, uh, of this place really being a home to so many different ethnic groups, uh, linguistic communities. And uh, in fact, today, when you walk out on the streets of London, uh, you probably get to hear the other languages far more than English. And even English is usually spoken with an accent, which is not British. So uh, it is definitely, and I think in a way, it's a reflection of the fact that uh, the Britishers have always, in many ways, been so open to, to cultures around the world. And the fact that you ruled half the world, I mean, at one point of time, uh, and I guess it's all coming back to you now. <laughs> you know, what goes around comes around as they say. And uh, so, uh, you know, like you rule the world, and now it's the world is sort of coming back to you in, in droves. And uh, the fact remains that, you know, uh, the, uh, I, I've, I can, of course, largely speak about the Indian um, community here. And uh, so many of them have been have been here for generations. They think of London in particular and Britain uh, in general as their home far more than they do um, about India or wherever, they, wherever else they came from. And uh, there is this feeling of, uh, of you know, being integrated in the society which probably doesn't exist in other countries where there are also large ethnic communities. So um, that is there. And also I feel that there is a lot of goodwill towards Britain in spite of the fact that, you know, they, they, you were one of the largest colonial um, you know, uh, empires in the world, but probably uh, the peoples, uh, the countries, um, you know, where where uh, you you ruled at one point of time, they have uh, come to realize once you leave, you know, that you weren't all that bad. And uh, so, unlike uh, a lot of um, other na other countries which were ruled by, say, the Spaniards or by you know by others, where there are a lot of bitter memories. With Britain, what I find, at least from my experience in India, is that there is a great deal of goodwill. There is still a lot of war there are, there are good memories uh, in the sense that you know it's felt that if it had to be uh, you know we had to be ruled by someone Britain was probably better than a whole lot of others who could have been here and therefore the, and, and plus of course there's this major um, bond that has been established because of the language so that is not an issue when you come to Britain you feel at home uh, British English literature is a part of you know so many of us growing up and uh, I remember the first time I came to London it was like everything was familiar all the names were familiar, you know, Hyde Park and Serpentine and, you know, like Mayfair and all that. So it, it does give you a feeling of being open, being welcoming. And I think uh, in London in particular, uh, people um, have made a very, very special effort to open themselves out to, to um, and it's a very, from the cultural point of view also, I find since, you know, like we do so many, so much programming at the Nehru Center, we find that the audience here is really well informed and open to uh, whatever comes to them. It's not, uh, it's not sort of, you know, okay, it's just a curiosity that you're, you're, you're witnessing or listening to or whatever. They actually respond with a lot of knowledge, a lot of curiosity, a lot of genuine, um, uh, you know, desire to actually integrate it into their own uh, daily life. So uh, definitely, I mean, uh, it, it is, I would say it's probably one of the, uh, far more than New York or Washington or any of the other cities. It is a world city. And the fact that the Olympics are uh, being held here, I think it's just a reflection of that.
because um, yeah. sorry, I was just going to ask um, Dan that the uh, director of the um, uh, Peerless Design Museum and, and, and one of my favourite museums in the world. But I we are trying to acquire a peer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I will, we, will, we will look in vain. I think. Um, but on this, is there an aesthetic dimension to this? Um, you know, one thinks of the, the way in which Londoners have resisted all attempts to turn their city into a grid, notably after the Great Fire. Um, is there a way in which there's a, a, an aesthetic uh, face to this, um, to this melting pot idea? We're coming to that in a moment. Um, it is interesting that both uh, Jude and Sangeeta have wandered around the territory of England, Britain and London. And these are all very different things. It's worth pointing out that London has existed an awful lot longer than England has. Yeah. And the point of a city is that it's not a national identity, it's an urban identity. And personally, I've always found myself more comfortable with the idea of being from London than being British or English, although one uses all those words as well. And then the question about this melting pot stuff. Um, I mean, again, the point of a successful city is that you don't have to melt, <laughs> that it is a place in which you can do what the hell you like, and take from the city what you need from it and ignore the bits that you don't want from it, which is, of course, the exact opposite of this English myth of the rural idyll, which is you know, Britain having invented the world's first world city, although actually Rome was probably bigger than Britain was, I mean, London was. But it invented the industrial city, and then the intellectuals of the 19th century were so appalled at what they'd done that they created this idea of how wonderful rural life was, yeah. which, of course, is no place to be different or you know, rural villages or the place in which you have to kind of conform. Um, going on to your point about grids and why London doesn't like them. Um, Dislike well, them, don't they? Um, well, there was a grid under the Roman city, which still right. exists. There's bits of the Barbican which were built on the road that the Romans built to go to the parade ground yeah. outside city walls. Um, and there's also a kind of sense which, um, again, is into the DNA that London doesn't like grand plans. Mm. But that's not entirely true either. It's worth remembering that um, Napoleon III and Baron Houseman spent some time in London when Nash was building Regent's Park and uh, Regent Street and cutting, slashing through the urban fabric and thought, that's a good idea, let's go and do it in Paris, which they did. Yeah. And there's a long history, I think, of both cities learning from each other. So um, London built the first underground. Uh, Paris didn't do much until uh, the 20th century, then did something much better. And it's taken London this long to build what is basically the RER, which is the crossrail system. So London allegedly doesn't make grand plans, but it somehow makes big things happen. Um, Canary Wharf is um, by no means um, the ideal utopian city, but it's happened, um, and it's changing fast as well. Uh, you know, 25 years ago, Canary Wharf was um, the end of the dock system. It was nothing. And then suddenly, through a series of random accidents, um, an American banker realized that the uh, system which was trying to give any kind of life to that area could be used to build office blocks. Um, the advanced factory units that were built in Canary Wharf are now being torn down 20 years later to make way for 60 and 70 storey high apartment buildings. Uh, London is the nearest thing in Europe to Shanghai. <laughs> I wanted to um, ask Yasmin um, because Sangeeta, it sounds that we're all we're lovely and welcoming. Um, I want to know about the flip side, actually, of the multicultural ideal, because when Michael was talking earlier about his journey uh, from the A10 down through 
to the centre of London via uh, terrible, trendy Stoke Newington, where I live. Um, I, I was, I'm very aware, living in Hackney, I think Matt lives in Hackney, but actually, it's not, love, it's not lovely. Um, there's a lot of issues all the time. I often think the problem of many commentators is that they simply don't get on a bus. They use taxis or the tube where people are quiet. If you want to know what London is like and see the mix of people, the top you, floor of the you get on a bus. A good, yeah. <laughs> you get on the top floor of the bus and you see the kids and you see people having all sorts of rows all the time. And that's the, re that's the reality. of it. We're, we're all rubbing up against each other and it's not all, always welcoming and lovely. Um, and, you know, we, I think people have talked about the riots. We've got this Olympic ideal. We have the reality of riots last, last year. So I wanted Yasmin to tell me what is the thing that, if you can, you know, that makes it mix up. I'm really pleased you said that because um, what I do want to say is that somebody started earlier um, about the long history. It's, this is not an, a new story. Um, and I, I'm writing a book at the moment on England. And here are two very quick examples. Joseph Addison, um, when he went to the Royal Exchange, he said, it, it gratifies my vanity as I'm an Englishman to see so much an assembly of countrymen and foreigners consulting together upon the private business of mankind and making this metropolis a kind of emporium. Nothing new. Wordsworth, Wordsworth, the countryside poet, wrote um, um, how he recalled his recollection of London, you know, the slow-moving Turk with slippers piled beneath his arms, the Swede, the Russian, the Frenchman, the Spaniard, the hunter Indian, Moors, Malay, uh, Malays, Luskas, and so on. So this was a city built by strangers. It has always been washed into and washed out of. But it's tough. And I think two things worry me a lot. The, I'm glad Suzanne mentioned the riots because they started in London. The biggest spread was in London. And these were the generation of young Londoners who haven't done this since the 80s when there was a very particular reason in the parts where the fires went up. In, in the 80s, it was race. We understood it. So I don't think we should overstate this idea that there is this wonderful circus in which we're all desperately happy. I am. It's the first and only place in my entire life where I feel I belong because nobody owns London, and I love the, that idea. And there are two or three things I just want to kind of put out. What makes London so extraordinary is what London makes. So, Zadie Smith wasn't imported as a highly successful young lady from elsewhere, which is the thinking, the political thinking today is, let's get the rich people, let's get the really famous people. That's not what London is. London makes extraordinariness happen. And it's a terribly tough place. Hanif Qureshi could not have been Hanif Qureshi out in Pakistan, where his dad came from, and to be invited to be one of our great men. It didn't. Chris Ophelia was made in London. And often the people who are really uh, Zaha Hadid, out of the difficulties, the hardness, and the extraordinary kind of energy, uh, the sheer stubbornness, I couldn't have been what I am had I never left Uganda. You know, I will always be grateful to Idi Amin, 
always. I was so grateful to him. If he hadn't chucked me out, I would be a bloody wifey to a rich businessman who probably owned the bus company. Instead, you know, this is what happened with the constant fight I have with my city. So I think it's quite important. And with the present policies, I think it's really important to remember that. We're not allowing students into Britain now, except in from America or wherever, Canada or wherever. We're cutting off that very ingredient which made people come here, young people, who, who, or even very talented people, and then London forged them, and I do mean forged. And the idea, the idea that we're going to be a rich person's playground, this is what happened in New York, and there's a very good piece by the editor of Vanity Fair in two issues back saying what killed New York was the ecology change that became a playground of the rich. That's what we're doing here. I'm really worried about it. Can I just pick up this very interesting um, point Dan made about the London being a country? And I, I must say I, that rings a lot of bells with me, which is that um, it has a gravitational pull. Uh, I certainly feel more comfortable in other cities like it than I do in rural England. Um, around the world. I feel more at home in New York or Rome than I do in Hampshire where I, I'm Woody Allen. I just don't get it at all. What's all this about? Um, and, and, and it leads me on to another related question that, that I've been interested to hear what panellists thought about, which is that um, England is not an idea in the way that America is an idea. But is London an idea? Is it, and this feeds very much into what Yasmin was saying about its ability to turn uh, people who come here into creatives. Is London actually an idea as much as anything? Is it, is it separate from the, rest of, uh, from the rest of Britain? The tough thing about talking about cities is we end up sounding like boosters. We mention the riots and then we suddenly switch into what a wonderful place London is because it makes all these well, it can great be things happen. Can't it? Of course it can. Mm -hmm. But the, I mean, most ideas about cities come from boosters. The people that you know, in America kind of laid out swamps and tried to sell plots in them. Glengarry, Glen Ross. Exactly that, exactly that. And London, I think, has a kind of certain skepticism to it, which I find a very appealing quality. I mean, I, I love the responses to those who said when we got the Olympic Games to come here, what a shame that the French didn't get it. You know, it's... That, that, that sense of, <laughs> That's very London, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. And, and that sense of the, the ridiculous and the kind of sense of not being taken by the booster quality. I think he was part of the London idea. And it reminds me of um, one of my favourite things that typifies London, I think, is that when David Blaine was hanging in a glass box above, <laughs> above, above the Thames, had that been in New York, everybody would have sort of respectfully looked at it, but people th uh, threw, because he hadn't eaten for 30 days, threw their fried breakfast up at him. Yeah. And I thought that was a very <laughs> kind of London response to, to not really take any, yeah. be, be that impressed almost. And we're not even going to be impressed by the Olympics, Jude, yeah, are think, we? Think about the logo with a dagger which was used in anger. <laughs> uh, I, I, mean, the, I think that London, when you, well, I was saying to Susanna, you go abroad and there are two things I can say that people would go, ha, ah, I can say I'm from London, and they go, ah, wherever you are, you know, Mali, Sudan, or they, ah, they know what London is, or they, there's, there's a kind of oasis feeling about this mirage appears in front of their eyes, and they sort of know it. I can also say I'm from Liverpool, and they also go, ah, really? football, yeah. Beatles. Um, but if you say England, they really phase out. And if you say Britain, sometimes they're quite bewildered. Uh, and so, you know, you realise that this idea of London being a country 
I mean, I wouldn't have described it that way, but I think people do almost imagine it in that way. I think that's, that's exciting. But there's also something that perturbs me a lot, is this idea that there is a, a sort of a London style of doing things. Because actually, there's, um, how can I put this? There's the chattering classes. And here we are, chattering. Um, and I think that there is a sort of desire for any chattering class to make sure they're not too enthusiastic about anything because it's not intellectually done to be enthusiastic and happy. It's, it sort of doesn't go with the territory, does it? No, and the default mode is cynicism. The default mode has to be cynicism. Skepticism, skepticism, fine. But, but actually, you know, I'm not sure that, that reflects how most people in London live their lives. Because most people in London actually belong to Battersea mm. or Haringey or mm. Hackney. And they describe their lives as a village, really. And they belong to a community, and that's how they live. So there's sort of London, the, 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 the world shaping makers of, of that kind of um, intellectual life. And then there's really the fact that millions and millions of people live here. And I, I think they're probably slightly different personalities. Thank you. So when you leave London, do you detect a, a change in mood, attitude? Um, no, I wouldn't say mood and attitude, but yes, you can uh, sort of, it is very obvious that uh, the, the kind of society that you have here in London is probably not, it probably doesn't exist in other cities. Maybe uh, to some extent in places like Birmingham, Nottingham and all that, where there are, again, you know, large ethnic communities. But, uh, for example, if I go to Ireland, to Belfast, it is, uh, it, it immediately strikes you what a, you know, predominantly white society it is. And people, um, you know, you, the kind of looks you get in, in the roads and, you know, the way, it's not unfriendly. I'm not saying that at all. There is a lot of curiosity. There's a lot of, um, you know, desire to interact, to find out. But you are a kind of a curiosity. It's not, you're not accepted the way you are in London. That is very much so. But maybe because I'm a diplomat, maybe because, you know, I understand what you're saying, that everything is not, you know, a bed of roses here. That's very true. But the fact remains that um, perhaps it's my own personal experience because of, you know, since I'm here for only a limited time and because I interact with uh, with a a particular kind of people, perhaps that is the reason why, you know, most of my feedback has been positive. The way I have interacted with people has been positive. But, um, yes, outside it is uh, very different. It is very different. London is, you know, uh, really a world in itself. Yeah. Quite so. Do you want to talk, Yasmin, about the different... um, villages or shall we shall we now open it out to I the just want to also say don't forget there have been three or four reports in the last nine months or so about the high level of uh, unemployment amongst highly qualified um, uh, Londoners of colour I use that term because it just brings everybody together including university graduates. There is increasing racial discrimination, increasing uh, uh, tribalization between the young. So you go to universities. When I go to talk at public lectures at Imperial, I suddenly see the groups are now sitting divided. Mm. And so we have to keep the kind of show going, and London keeps the show going. Mm. And London will keep the show going. Nothing is going to kill London. But at the same time, I think it does not serve us well if we then turn away from the very obvious problems staring us in the face. Because if we let some of that carry on, the very thing we're now really loving so much, 
um, will very quickly break up into. And I think we have to remember the riots much more than we do, actually. Yeah. Can, I, can I just add to that, which is that this sort of idea that it's actually quite nice to be sceptical um, can be very unproductive in the end because you know, London for many people and particularly young people when you travel abroad I mean I've just had a lot of Brazilians in to see me this morning about our festival of the world and they really love London you know, they, they adore it they adore it for its values or what they perceive its values to be its values of tolerance inclusiveness etc and um, you know pastorally London's relationship to Britain and particularly to England I think should be a leadership role. I'm not saying that you know other cities haven't got so much to offer. Of course they have, and I'm from Liverpool, I would say that. But it's just that if London chooses not to recognise how important its idealism looks from the outside, if it squanders that idealism because it thinks it's not cool or it's irrelevant, I think it would be a shame. Well, jump, jumping in for a moment, supposing we kind of sub substitute the word dissent for scepticism, and London is a place which welcomes and values which dissent. Which is great, which is great. And yeah. there is no one idea of what Londoness is. Whereas if there is such a thing as England, it's a much more mm. prescriptive identity. Mm -hmm. And that is the point of cities, and it always has been. London's not the first city in the world to actually have this fantastic range of people. It's a condition that the ancient cities of Alexandria or Istanbul or Rome had, and it's something which is very precious to London. But I do think that the idea that we will have to kind of swivel forward and march to the future to one tune about how wonderful London is and how wonderful the Olympics are is not what no, 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 that's about. not what I'm saying. What I'm but saying is that, no, sorry, it's not. Defending the ability to have dissent energetically is different. Well, you just weren't. You were just saying that it's actually something we want to be careful of. But isn't it no, to do with whether we say careful of actually not believing the importance of London as a symbol? for people, of tolerance, of energy, etc. That's all. No, one would, no one would dissent from that. <laughs> I think, I think, Very oh, I don't know, is, is the balance that we don't become sentimental, um, as I think we did actually in a lot of post-riot analysis, uh, uh, because it was a trauma, and so I, I found a lot of the post-riot analysis, oh, the fantastic uh, Turkish Cypriots of Dalston out there with their machetes defending their community, the Sikhs of Southall. Well, if you live in these places, you know these guys have got machetes every day of the week. Um, so I felt there was a sort of terrible uh, grab back. Um, everything went wrong, but hey, everyone's okay, really. They're not okay, really. It's not okay, really. Um, uh, so I think that you can have, an, personally, I think you can have an attitude where you like some of the things that Jude says, but you also accept that we are not a melting pot. We are, what did you call it, Matt? A salad? Salad pot. <laughs> this is, I, I can't claim originality though. This is, I mean, obviously, the melting pot debate has been going on in America for a very long time, and I've heard the the all sorts of metaphors, uh, culinary or otherwise, going uh, on about this. One of, one of them is that actually the melting pot is, 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 is a misnomer, that really it's a salad, it's a salad bowl, and the, the, the force of that is we kid ourselves that it's all about a, a kind of happy um, a confluence and, and, and mingling of, of um, cultures, but actually people uh, live side by side in fairly discrete units. And, and I'd be interested to hear from the panel before we, we throw it over to the floor is, I mean, to what extent uh, is London still fairly cantonized? Uh, you see, I don't think it is. I think London is the least cantonized city in, in Europe. Uh, I would even go as far as saying that much less so than the American cities. And we do have 
and we must talk about this, it was in 1574 that the first panic in London was raised about the white women who went with black men and produced all these children. 1574, and they haven't stopped since. <laughs> you know, so there's an incredible mixture, biological mixture. To kill you, mockingbird. <laughs> <laughs> and we, you know, I live in Ealing, which is a very mixed area, and sometimes I go into a restaurant, and you cannot find a single table which is a single race or ethnicity. Mm. So that's going on, but we are also separating. All these things go on together. In and is that socioeconomic rather than no. cultural? I think what's happening, and, and this is where I think the universities are very interesting illustrations of this, that I think because of globalization and kind of vanishing or feeling of vanishing identities and languages, people are almost withdrawing from this big thing around them. Mm. But they can't. In the end, they won't be yeah, able no, to. Absolutely. You know? Um, so I think it's a, such a mixed, contradictory, extraordinarily uh, undefinable place. Mm. But what doesn't suit us is to big it up in the way sometimes uh, it is bigged up. You know, I don't think that works. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree with not over romanticizing it, and I agree that actually the tensions of any huge city and the poverty levels are are shaming. And you know, if we wanted to talk about the way that children in London are neglected on on a massive scale, you know, that that's a, a real issue. I think so. I think that London needs to look at itself on a daily basis and say, well, you know, what's wrong as well as what's right. But in terms of separating out in salad form, I just wanted to <laughs> talk about an event that we held the other week called um, Bourbon. It was called Bourbon Music. Bourbon Music is a new... Was that at the South Bank Centre? The South Bank Centre, yeah. yes, which was uh, Brown Urban. <laughs> and, you know, we put it on in the afternoon, at one o'clock in the afternoon with Nihal, the DJ Nihal. And, it, we, and we put it on this Saturday afternoon because it meant that 15-year-old Sikh, Hindu, Muslim girls could come and do what girls do. They shrieked in front of, you know, lots of live boys, basically, <laughs> uh, doing a sort of mixture of hip-hop, reggae, and bangra. And you know, the, the speed at which cultural change happens through music, for example, yeah. is an example of things that, that can only occur, really, because people are grabbing stuff from the salad and mixing it all up again. And I, it's have, to, I have to tell you what, I, what we witnessed at the South Bank the other day, which was extraordinary. There was a night when I went to see a play which was being done in the boiler room. Uh, which was amazing. And up, upstairs, a song was playing. My husband, who's English, heard this song when I first met him on an Air India flight. They were showing Mughal Azam, which is our big, big, the biggest Hindi movie ever. It's like Gone with the Wind of Bombay. So they were showing this in the big hall. And when you looked around, three quarters of the people there were white. And there were the homeless had come in. From the, from the cold, and they were sitting and watching this Hindi movie, and eventually one of them said to my husband, this is a very good movie, this is. <laughs> and I just thought this could only happen when you set things up in this way, you know? So it is an extraordinary place, but here were the homeless, too, you know? Great reminders of what the great city is doing uh, to so many people, and always has done, actually. I'd also like to add um, one point about why you know most people, at least from India, feel so much at home here is 
that in a different way, it is very much a reflection of um, you know the, the the way the Indian society itself is constructed. We don't probably have this kind of you know this uh, enormous ethnic uh, divide among the people who live there. But uh, India, as you know, is a subcontinent in itself. Everybody, every state has its own language, its own cultures, customs, everything. And now, because of this whole globalization thing, people are moving around a lot in India too. And so it is something very similar to what happens, what is happening in London. Again, is the salad concept. I, I really wouldn't say that even with you know mostly um, Indian cities being populated by Indians themselves, it is still not a melting pot. I mean, everybody has exactly the way it happens in London. Uh, here it is. It may be the Spaniards and the Turks and the and the Indians and the you know whatever. There it is the Gujaratis and the Bengalis and the Marathis and the whatever. But it is uh, this kind of separate existence is maintained. Even even there, but that does not mean that you're not interacting. That does not mean that there is uh, no understanding between the groups, or that they don't come together for for specific things. And London, that way, is so different. Uh, my my uh, posting before here was in Belgium. I was in Brussels, and it was I, I just couldn't understand the kind of attitude they had. I mean, big, it, it, it was such a big issue whether you spoke Dutch or you spoke French, and the whole country is staring up because of that. Because the French don't want to live in the areas where there is a Dutch majority and vice versa. And that was something that is incomprehensible to somebody who's, you know, who's, who's, who's grown up in a country like India or, or I suppose in London because here just because you speak a different language or you, you dress differently or you eat differently or, uh, you know, your, your, your cultural matrix, matrix is different from, from everybody else around you, that doesn't mean that you cannot live together. And that is a very major thing for any kind of a world city, which I think London is to be comfortable with. If you're not comfortable with that, you cannot. Uh, Brussels, for example, is just a little village. It can never have a claim to being a world city or a global place. So that, I think, is something very special about London, which probably for those of you who live here, it doesn't strike you because, you know, if, you, if you're so familiar with the place, so many things about India don't strike me until somebody tells me. But for an outsider who's coming, uh, it, it, is, it is a very big thing. And I really, really believe that. Right, well, maybe we should uh, take some questions now. And uh, a, a good approach, I think, is to take two or three at a time and then let the panel rip. Um, so we've got some roving mics. I see the son of York there. <laughs> um, one group, I think, being slightly left out of account, I, I utterly agree with Yasmin about it sort of works. It sort of works and certainly sort of works better than, say, New York or any other major city I can think of. But there's one group of people who, to be absolutely honest, friends who are Caribbean Brits or Indian Brits or Pakistani Brits are united in their dislike of, and that is the global super-rich, who are the one group of immigrants, and they come from absolutely everywhere, who everyone loves to hate. Um, this is a very, very important element uh, defining London now and defining the tensions within it because the top bananas in London now come from everywhere except London. How do okay. people feel about that? Uh, another question to... Hi, my name is Clayton Littlewood. Um, I'm a, an author of two books on Soho, and I live and work in Soho. And when I saw the title, What Makes London a Melting Pot, that kind of really struck a chord with me. Um, living um, on Old Compton Street, being 
probably one of the most cosmopolitan streets in London, uh, going right back to the huge nose, and we have Little Italy and the gay community. <clears throat> but what <clears throat> I've noticed in the past few months, uh, six months, is as an area like this becomes uh, known for being so cosmopolitan, that's when the independent shops get forced out, the big businesses move in. Uh, the super rich that you've just talked about uh, buy these huge penthouses in these places. So the melting pot feel of it goes and it becomes a bland, I don't know, Croydon High Street or, you know, Tesco Metro will move in and, and then you suddenly lose what made that place so creative um, and I think the super rich maybe want to have a taste of edginess and to be seen to be living in somewhere hip and cool and, and that's when it, it starts to slowly disappear and I wonder what the panel thought of that. Hello Matthew, it's Ivo Dorney. Oh, hi, um, hi. Sorry, I recognise you in the we, we did some research for the National Trust about Londoners and I think the thing that most um, was most remarkable to me was very nearly 70% of Londoners are under 40 years old um, but I wonder how long that could be sustained by something I think Peter touched on, which is what I call the candyization of London. And I think what's so interesting about that ghastly building that the candies have built at the bottom of Knightsbridge is there are never any lights on. And there are never any lights on because nobody's there. They've actually, um, what's happened is that we've become the kind of Cayman Islands for people who want to protect their money, protect their personal security, so that they buy into the very, very rich areas of Knightsbridge and Kensington and Chelsea. Um, but they don't intend to live there. They'll drop in for a couple of weeks shopping, perhaps, over the year. And so we're seeing this hollowing out of large sections of London, which were very full of vibrant people. Um, and we also see the pressure on those um, those 70% of Londoners, the younger people, who simply cannot afford to kind of buy into the city. Um, so I think there's some really extraordinary and dramatic demographic changes happening actually very much as we speak. Mm -hmm. Fascinating that in some respects the, the, those three questions were all aspects of the same uh, issue and problem. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's, I just came back from Greece on Saturday morning and one of the things that was being talked about in Greece was the fact that the very rich were buying properties in London. And I was really surprised by that. But they were saying, well, of course, it's the natural place. If you want to protect your extremely wealthy bank account, then go to London, because the property prices can be, can be relatively consistently assured. And um, I mean, I remember the anti-Arab feeling in the 80s and then there's the anti-Russian feeling, and then there's the anti-Chinese feeling, and now I don't suppose there's going to be an anti-Greek feeling, but, but, but it, it made me be, begin to feel that, that debate about whether all our brands and all our centers had actually been colonized and taken away, and we'd always kind of go, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? it? Made me think, well, maybe it does matter, and maybe it really matters because of the idea of the center of London, needing to belong to everybody and not just a few. And I don't know what you do about it. I mean, I have no idea what regulations you bring in to stop that happening, but I'm aware of places pushing the poorer to the margins, and then you will lose that vibrancy. And in fact, it, you know, in Shakespeare's London, I think 70% of, of people were under 20. 
uh, and that that vibrancy is needed in to keep a kind of a cult city culturally alive. You need it to be full of young people and, and not just tourists. But if you're in retirement, you probably don't want to be surrounded entirely by those people. There's a phenomenon in um, Pacific Rim uh, in North America, Vancouver, Seattle, places like that, and in Australia, um, Brisbane, which is called temporary paradise syndrome, which is that here are places which are initially wonderful. You can drive to work in 10 minutes. There's work. The schools are great. Fantastic beaches, wildlife in your garden. And, of course, these wonderful things attract people and more people and more people so we kill the things that we love and this is what's happened in Soho that the attractive parts of a city attract people who are, have got something to do and something to say and that attraction then brings in those who try to institutionalize it and I suppose a healthy city is one which actually allows these processes to take place without atrophying, without making change irreversible so that there's I, I can never see Candy and Candy's apartment buildings being turned into mixed live use with kind of, uh, you know, a studio and a restaurant and a pop-up store or something. But are there places in London which you could actually see this happening, that there is a way um, in which you can safeguard the future without imposing the kind of crippling planning constraints which kill vitality? Um, I, I think what's, what's happening in Soho has already happened in um, Notting Hill. Notting Hill was an extraordinary place once upon a time with a real mix of population, with energy, with people in the original Caribbean, arrivals to London and the carnival, all that. And now it's even worse than the, the rich taking, I'm sorry, I'm quite left-winged, I will say, the rich taking over. But what they're now doing is creating little theme parks of what they think Notting Hill used to be, which is almost worse than doing nothing at all. You know, so they have roti rest in very posh restaurants. Um, and I think this is a real danger. This is what I meant when I said the ecology that it isn't hating the rich, but it's actually making sure they don't buy all the places that were mixed and were known for being not just edgy, but difficult, creative, and where ordinary people felt comfortable. Notting Hill, even the oldest residents no longer feel is their place. Do you think the mayor should have a planning system? Well, well we need something. Yeah. We do need something. We can't have a completely you know, buy into this idea of unplannedness as being the future. Mm. I mean, I really don't think you can do that. Planning has helped us stop many a disaster. So some planning is necessary. Would you and, go and caused a few. Let's not yeah. pretend. Mm. <laughs> planning has not got an unblemished or cloudless reputation. No, no, I'm saying, but with this whole, you know, move towards let's have less regulation, I think one could say, for example, going back to small shops, that whoever is going to come in with their next new uh, express supermarket if there is one within five miles, then planning permission isn't given to that one. You, know, you can do things like that. Would you, would you do it um, via Ben's method of giving the mayor more power? How, I, how, how are we to achieve that? Well, I don't know if I would like one man, as it often is, one white man, to, which is the only competition London, London's mayoral contest always succeeds in giving us two middle-class men every time so far. Um, Ken won't like that. Well, he is you know, middle-class, <laughs> that he cares to admit. That you can't give that much power, but you could maybe localise decisions. Um, you know, that the, the areas where people live can have some say, I think. 
Yeah. It is interesting I, how the axis shifts, isn't it? Because presumably, I mean, actually, when you think about Knightsbridge, I mean, uh, and uh, South Kensington, I mean, it was only 120 years ago that it was the vegetable garden area. Mm. And obviously it got colonised, it got owned, and it's it's pretty much not owned by Londoners in well, a kind yeah. of, you know, that mixed way. It's not a vegetable market it anymore. Isn't a vegetable market anymore. But some... on the other hand, Hackney is, and so is, you know, Bow and Mile End. So maybe just the axis has to keep shifts. The, the, the thing I would worry about is if the whole of the centre had then changed to become a sort of mass Knightsbridge, and that is when, actually, I think the system And I think die. it almost has, and the, the, the wealth difference is, what is it, 230% now? We've always had the rich and the poor in yeah. this country, but it's the... It's just going east. Yes, but how far east can we go? South I'm going to stop because I can see some hands up. There's somebody at the back there. Um, you say melt melting pot. I wonder if the panellists would care to comment on the idea of uh, unrestricted immigration to London. And before you condemn it as a utopia, let's note that uh, America and Texas have not been too successful, even with their walls and all the other things they do, at preventing immigration. Why don't we give up and allow black people or anybody into this town? Please explain why not. Uh, Nico McDonald, I pick up on my creative technologist thesis earlier on, uh, t today and particularly, I think we, we need to come back to the question about why, what's the point of having a melting pot or what's the value of it? And I was arguing that designers need to uh, be more familiar with, engage with, understand engineering and other skills. Um, to what extent do we think people involved in creative industries and design in London are, um, if you like, unghettoized enough, are engaging with other domains and skills and so on, and also actually the people that they're designing for. And I do wonder if, on a sort of broader point, and perhaps um, uh, Yasmin and Jude might pick up on this, whether in fact we've become less of a melting pot, but the divisions have changed in some way. Because I think historically people met through um, civic organisations like churches and clubs and trade unions and political parties, and obviously work and uh, restaurants and schools and so on. But it seems to me that in a way we have less contact with people who are unlike us than we might have had at any time in the post-war period. We tend to hang out with people who are like us in some way. And in fact, the division, it's a bit between people like us and the white working class who have sort of forgotten, if you like. And it's a bit like we hang out with other people who are tolerant and like the idea of a melting pot. And we're intolerant of all the people who don't like the idea of a melting pot. And maybe there's sort of different division, in fact, we're not such a melting pot, but it's just in different ways. And ultimately, if we're not tolerant or interested in those other people, uh, you know, what kind of a future are we creating if we're not really interested in those, those other groups of people? Yeah, I think everybody should respond to that on the panel and then uh, to these last questions, and then I think we'll, we'll wind up there. So. Sangeeta, do you have a response to the immigration question? Pretty tough question. Yeah, it is a tough question, and uh, especially since we are, you know, very often the brunt of uh, the, the evolving immigration laws, it is, uh, for, for me as a diplomat who has, and, and particularly somebody who deals with culture, who has to, you know, forever be begging uh, the British High Commission for, for visas, etc., to be issued, it is a big issue. And um, I feel that um, it, it's, it's uh, you know, immigration laws have to be, sort of practical and sane because if you're just going to be stopping everybody from coming in 
it harms you in the sense that um, you know a lot of people who could be very productive additions to your society, you're stopping them from coming. And I think it is a fact of life today in Europe that uh, none of the of the countries here really have their own uh, ethnic majority, uh, which is large enough to take care of all your requirements. You have to have people from outside to keep the society going, to keep the economy running. And I think one of the mistakes that have been done is probably that you are allowing a lot of uh, you know, nobody questions people who are coming here uh, illicitly, for example. You know, people just steal into, into, into UK from all directions and all kinds of really amazing and hair-raising uh, fashions. And because, you know, we come across all these people who've, who've been smuggled in the back of a truck or, you know, in, inside the luggage, uh, you know, portion of, of an air, aircraft or whatever. So these are all people who are coming in who are, who are you know, basically hanging around probably uh, as leeches on, on the system. And they're getting a lot of support from from the government. I think where Britain is going wrong is where uh, is that you've given up this you know this kind of uh, I wouldn't say um, discrimination, but uh, you are not really uh, stopping people who are unproductive from coming in. They they come in, they they enjoy you know the taxpayers' wealth and whatever. And people who are willing to contrib contribute, who would like to come here uh, legally and do something, contribute to society, those are the people who are actually suffering. Um, that is that is the way we see it. People who just want to come here and, you know, performers and artists and things like that, they are being put through a lot of nonsense at the at the stage of the issue of visa. And this is just, you know, uncalled for and it is probably unproductive and unhelpful. So some kind of rationalization of this whole immigration policy is definitely, definitely required. And um, perhaps um, in, in some ways you're, uh, the British society is also going overboard and allowing a tremendous amount of outsiders coming in and doing precisely what they want. So I, I feel that some amount of regulation, you know, legal, um, uh, 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 I would say a slightly less, um, you know, uh, liberal uh, point of view should also be maintained in the sense if you're here, then you live the way uh, the society has been functioning for all, all these uh, all these uh, centuries or um, whatever. So uh, that, that kind of thing has to be maintained. But to uh, say that immigration itself is bad is probably something uh, you know which which uh, people need to rethink. And uh, what was the other thing? One was about the immigration, and uh, there was something else. Nico's uh, question. You had to change the way in which we divide people in society between the tolerant and the intolerant. We're just uh, we're not interested in those people and their future. Anymore. Mm, do you think so? Well, Is that, are we talking about class there, really, Nico? Uh, it's kind of class. It's <laughs> yeah. kind of Kind of the people not like us, but they're, they're different kind of people. Let's let's add other members of the panel in because I'm conscious that we've only got. I think Nico is describing a village rather than a city. Actually, I mean, the, the point about a city is that there are bits which are not sweetness and light. Um, that there are bits which are uncontrolled, which are not where you have to like your neighbour. It's actually accepting what the city is about, and it's accepting that that actually has positive as well as negative aspects to it, rather than trying to kind of understand the city as being a complete finished work of art, as it were. I think the key thing we've been talking about just in this session really is what Yasmin touched upon, and I was rather frivolously kind of taking it to task on saying, let's have central control on menus in restaurants. I mean, what we're looking at is how do we actually encourage and underscore and reinforce the positive things about a city and try to kind of make it harder for the negative things to happen. 
and that's um, what is about what it's looking at what makes us specific about what is London. It's not trying to collect ready-made solutions from other places. Um, you know, there's so few ideas in planning systems that when somebody has a good idea, they spread like contagious avian flu um, with usually equally negative res results. The mayor clearly has been a very positive thing for London. Um, we need to find ways in which those powers can be expanded, which allow big ideas to happen every so often. We probably do need a new airport. We probably do need Crossrail, but also allow um, the diversity of streets in Soho or Hoxton or further east to go on allowing new things to happen. Um, can I want to disagree with uh, Sangeetha actually quite strongly. The idea that um, those people who arrive on the backs of lorries and many of them die and we never even know their names, let alone their numbers, let alone names, that they are then able to go and get benefits. They are not. Once you're an illegal, your, your life is perilous here and you work so hard in the underground economy just to survive. And it's one of those myths that some of our tabloid uh, papers have promoted that they come here and they take our benefits. Actually, you can't. You can only get benefits under very strict conditions of legal entry. But what happens to this lot is they, they do enter the twilight economy. And they're the cleaners that work at, and I've interviewed them. I've walked London at 5 o'clock in the mornings and gone into buildings like this, exactly buildings like this, and found these people who have no rights, no existences. You know, so I think it's really important to... Now, the question was, let's open the doors, let everybody come in. It would never work politically. But what you can do, reason why there are so many illegal immigrants to London is because the idea of London is so colossal, the world around. If we said to people, OK, come, but you can have a three-year visa to come and work, but at the end... And whatever you earn, a proportion of your tax will be put aside. And when you leave, you can take this pot back with you and you can reapply if you want to at some point. Make it possible for people to come and work, do what they wish, and not be trapped in this illegal, horrible, uh, murderous existence that, you know, they, they have no options. And that way, I think you create a flow. It won't solve all our problems. It won't change the anti-immigration um, paranoia of this country, which has been there since, as um, I think Jude said, from Elizabeth I. But you might make it more of a world city. At the moment, I think we're saying the world may not come. That's not what our world city should behave. No, I was only saying that you know you make it easy, not easy really, but you don't stop people from coming in illegally. People who want to contribute, who actually want to do something, they are the ones who are stopped because of the immigration. But you laws. can't so stop yes, people. Can, can I just give them the time? Allow to do the. Yeah, I, I actually think the two questions are strangely related, or the two comments, because. I think if more of the people who think they're liberal and more of the people who are not liberal actually found out more about the people they have opinions about, I think there would be much more intelligent policy making. I think the reality of, of it is that most people do stick to the people they, that are like them. I think we mainly do do that, humans do do that. Um, but we have lots of opinions about everybody else. 
and they're not usually founded on sufficient actual knowledge. So, you know, Yasmin, as a journalist and a writer and as a person of curiosity, walks the streets and finds the people and hears the, hears the reality. Not enough of us do. I mean, we did a very interesting talk a few weeks ago where we were talking about, um, you know, poverty in London. And uh, people said, well, actually, we're talking about lots of other people. Who here knows their next-door neighbour? Only two people in the audience would put up their hands and say, I know my next-door neighbour. So I think that there's a, a lack of engagement in the way people are actually living their lives. And I think that feeds into an inability to have intelligent discussion about immigration amongst other things. And, and on the immigration issue, I mean, I'll just give you a, an example. To, to back up Sangeeta's point about artists, you know, we are supposedly the cultural playground of the world, cultural industry center and so on. But the, the impact these, the um, yeah. immigration visas are having on artists around the world, choosing not to come to London anymore, it's immense. Yeah. Um, we've, we, have, we have 203 poets coming for Poetry Parnassus, and they're literally being told, if you haven't got a bank account with sufficient money in, we're not going to let you in. Yeah. Well, name me a poet, you know, who has a bank account with sufficient money in. Anyway, but, but the... Homer, probably, by now. Homer, but yes, he's got Royalties, royalties, royalties yeah. <laughs> um, So I, I suppose that I think that we, we, if we are aiming for London to be a city curious and interested in dissent, which and I agree with about that, then let's make sure we have knowledge as well. And I think that's about sort of going out of our houses and learning about other people and not just our own tribe. We mustn't overstate middle-class tolerance right. and working-class intolerance. Actually, most of those no, relationships no, are in working-class. No. no, I was saying to Nico, was saying about the tolerant-intolerant. You know, class isn't necessarily a definer of tolerance or intolerance. I really feel that strongly. I, no, yeah. uh, I, I have, sadly, to draw uh, this to a close, but could, before I see the figure of elegant authority of Julia Hobsbawm <laughs> lurking in, in my peripheral vision, as she so often does, uh, before, before she um, uh, dispenses wisdom, can we, can we um, uh, uh, show our appreciation to the panellists? And, and thank you to you. Just before you go off for lunch, a beautiful lunch hosted by Bloomberg, uh, one of the things I enjoy when programming these conferences is the freedom to do exactly as I like. And I have to say, pairing Suzanne Moore and Matthew Dancona was one of my better decisions. So can we also applaud them for their rather good chairing? Um, Bloomberg, you know, are hosting this morning City of London, you heard from. You may not have registered that one of our other partners uh, is the very wonderful hidden jewel of London, uh, which is the Bishopsgate Institute, and they were partner on one of the sessions. If you haven't got your head around what the Bishopsgate Institute does, and you love London, as clearly everybody who's been here this morning does, then, then you should. So I would also like to thank, I'm sure you've all been in touch with Lily Meads and Alex Geraghty and our EI team, who've been been marvellous as ever, so thank you to them.